Welcome to Campfire Football. I'm Sebastian North. The Gold Cup, La Copa de Oro, and the Olympics. So these two tournaments started after the finish of the Euros and the Copa America, obviously the major continental cups. And the Gold Cup is sort of one of those secondary international continental tournaments. But the Olympics is a whole other bag. You have the under-23s for the men. You have the top sides for the women, but not all of them. The formats of all of these have been totally messed up, but of course, packed inside is all the football, so we'll kind of touch on both today. Should be really fun. It's going to be an interesting two weeks. The scheduling is kind of a nightmare for the Olympics, so bear with me. I can't actually watch every single game like I did for the Euros. So I want to talk about the Gold Cup for a little bit here at first. It's, it's a fun little tournament because it's actually it's got some good memories attached to it. Uh, back in 98... The United States beat Brazil 1-0 in the Gold Cup, the only victory to date the U.S. has against Brazil. There was also that Gio dos Santos uh, goal that I think a lot of people have seen in highlight reels on YouTube where he gets the ball in the box, goes around, does a little meandering from side to side before he chips a ball into the top corner at the back post. Overall, it's, uh, you know, last time I think there was one nice story. Curaçao got out of their group in 2019. That was kind of nice as well. You always like seeing little stories like that. And especially in a region where competition is difficult to manage, right? I mean, it's kind of the same problem in Oceania. You have Australia, New Zealand, and then everyone else. And then so they pulled Australia out and put them in Asian qualifying. And now New Zealand kind of routinely dominate the oceanic qualification it's, it's difficult when you've got all these island countries it just it's just difficult so little historical context the gold cup actually was branded as the gold cup in 91 prior to that it had been the Concacaf championships um held and won by many different countries but once it was made done in the done as the gold cup it has been perennially well not perennially it's not every year but it's been biannually hosted in the United States. So every iteration has been here, which is kind of an interesting thing. I think it gives a pretty big advantage to the United States. Um, really, it had to be only the United States or Mexico that could host this kind of a tournament, I think, uh, on a broad scale to where you would get a lot of people visiting. <clears throat> Tourism would get driven up a lot by it. it might, hap- might happen in Honduras or El Salvador, but th- those are there's governments are so unstable that a lot of the time for all kinds of reasons that we were not going to get into today because this is not a geopolitical show. This is a football show. So interesting, uh, the Gold Cup, I have to say, the crowds have been getting bigger and bigger every year. The intensity, the rivalries, it it does improve the quality of the football in the region. Uh, One of the funny format components is that there is always a guest team from another region. Uh, It's been, like I said, Brazil once upon a time. It's been Colombia. It's been lots of teams. This year, it's Qatar, uh, who will be hosting the World Cup next year. And to be honest, they've looked pretty good so far. They've advanced to the quarterfinals. So that should be interesting to see how it goes. Uh, historically, look, this competition, it's not very even. Uh, Mexico's won it eight times. The U.S. has won it six. Canada won it once back in 2000, beating a guest team, Colombia, in the final. So no guest team has ever won it. That's kind of an interesting thing. It's got a bit of a Farmers League competition feel to it, doesn't it? When only three teams ever have won it and only two routinely do and consistently meet each other in the final. Uh, and if they don't reach the final against each other, it's almost, it almost feels like a given who's going to win because it's the other one of the Giants. So 
it's it's been kind of interesting looking into watching the Gold Cup, enjoying some of the games, seeing a fair bit of parity at certain times. You know, the U.S. were not very good against Haiti and beat them only 1-0. Yes, they thrashed Martinique, but then struggled to beat Canada. And, you know, Mexico got pushed to the limit by Honduras. Uh, El Salvador's looked really good. Costa Rica are strong. Panama have been all right. Uh, Jamaica qualified for the next round. So, you know, the, there's, there's some decent competition here. But you sort of wonder where's the cap, right? Because Mexico are in a little bit of a funk right now with, with the amount of talent that they have at their disposal. The United States is getting better and better and better football here. So are the two countries sort of destined to leave the island nations behind just by virtue of having more talent and more people? Um, if so, I also heard a lot of rumblings about why don't we merge Copa America and Gold Cup and just basically get rid of Gold Cup and just call it Copa America. I agree with that. I think that it'd be good for teams to qualify for Copa America. For the South American teams, not all of them can make it. Not all of the North American teams can make it. And you set up some kind of qualifying thing where you don't have to do what you did with the format this time around in Copa America. I mean, it was a little bit ridiculous to play something like 20 group games to eliminate two teams. And that was Bolivia and Venezuela. And we, we, you know, we, I think a lot was talked about that, how then they went and did a tournament after that where it could have been shrunk a lot more. And you think about it, well, what, if it's a 10-team tournament, then why not just expand it to 12 or to, no, to 16, which can't be difficult to involve some, some of the North American teams, make 16-team tournament. It's a little bit more legit. It feels a little bit bigger. There's not as much of this consistent playing each other kind of thing where it's just rivalries that keep spilling over a lot of the time. I mean, anyone who saw the news of what happened in the Copa Libertadores last night between uh, Boca and Atletico Mineiro, holy holy cow, just an absolute mess. Um, police tear gassing some of the players who seem to be just attacking each other, pretty, just wild scenes. So, I don't know. I think it'd be really interesting. I would love to see the Copa America swallow the Gold Cup, mostly because I'm sick and tired of the Gold Cup being looked at as such a second-rate competition that the United States and Mexico don't get to test their brass against the big boys, that a tournament like the Gold Cup, they bring a C team. Look, it's great for developmental purposes, I suppose, but I, you know, I'm not really, I'm not really with it. I, I actually think that the one other thing that no one talks about is what happens to all the Caribbean teams. Of course, the reason why you don't want to get rid of it is because it gets rid of a tournament for them. True, right? And so we, we, what, what, why don't we come up with a solution for the island teams? I think the Caribbean Island Cup, you know, just throwing a simple name out there. Anyone who wants to get more creative, please uh, run with this idea. But this could be a fun little lucrative thing, right? You have just a competition that's held along the Caribbean islands at all the stadiums that they have that, you know, are appropriate. It's sort of hosted along and you can just take boats and little island hoppers and get from place to place and see the games um, all in super picturesque locations, ideal tourism spots. You can go watch international football that is, you know, sanctioned by FIFA. So sort of set up by FIFA. I don't know if that's a good thing, but I mean, somewhere where the competition is important the whole way through, I think, this is what was this was really difficult about the Olympics on the women's side for me. This is what was annoying for a lot of people about the Euros. 
this whole idea that third place teams can qualify or like the Copa America where only two teams are knocked out of the group phase and the other eight survive. This is just not competitive enough. It doesn't raise the stakes high enough in the group stage and therefore makes it less interesting for people to watch. And that's not that's not what anyone wants. I, I want the opportunity for teams, but I want to make sure that you know, they actually have a competitive environment because it's annoying to hear commentators saying at the Gold Cup, the first two games of the tournament, that didn't matter for the U.S. The tournament starts now. And look, I understand that idea with, you know, powerhouses in, in tournaments. Tournament starts now when they get to the quarters or something. In reality, the tournament starts the moment they step on the field because any team can beat them if they're not playing well. That's just my little thing on the Gold Cup and and the way some of these tournaments have been. I I, I do I'm going to get into the Olympics next, so I am going to talk about this third place finishing at some point a little bit more. But before we move on, I just want to go ahead and throw some Gold Cup predictions out there because why not? I mean, this is actually kind of a fun bracket to run with, so I've decided I'm going to take all the all the quarterfinalists and. Go all the way to the final with who I think will win it. So Qatar is playing against El Salvador, who have been really impressive. Both of them, actually. Mexico are playing Honduras, Costa Rica against Me- against Canada, and USA against Jamaica. So I actually give Qatar the edge against El Salvador. El Salvador, I think, have been much more impressive than I've seen in the past. But there's also this Qatar team. They have a lot of quality. And they're hosting the World Cup next year in their home country. They are. They have no real footballing respect from the world at large at this point. And so this is going to be a statement for them. They're not just here to disappear. They want to be seen. And so they'll want to win it. Mexico-Honduras, this is where I'm calling a an upset. I actually think Honduras have the opportunity here to hit up Mexico. Mexico haven't looked fluid. They've struggled a lot. And though they've sort of slid through the group stage, it hasn't been comfortable. And Honduras have nothing to lose here. And so, I, I don't know. I just have a weird feeling a shock may be coming in this one. Costa Rica, Canada. Look, it's it's all about can Canada have their players fit. A uh, few players went down injured in the last game. I don't know if Akinola is going to be back. Uh, it, it's, it's hard to know. It is exciting, though, looking at this Canadian team being like, man, imagine if they had all their best players, including Alfonso Davies, this is a pretty quality team. There's some really good players here. And so, look, I actually give Canada, I think they've played well, the way that they commanded about 60 minutes of the game against the United States. I give them the edge here. So I actually think Canada will move on to the semifinal over Costa Rica, and I do think the U.S. will beat Jamaica. So we'll call that one sort of a formality. Not at all. I mean, Jamaica is definitely good enough to beat the U.S., but I think the U.S. will have enough. Uh, to, to get by Jamaica. Then they will play against Qatar. So this is one where whew, I'm really, really, uh, I'm really on the edge on this one. I'm going to address Canada against Honduras first. I think Canada will make it to the final. As for Qatar against the USA, this is a Qatar team that is, like I said, gearing up for the World Cup. Not that they have a whole lot more experience than the United States in big scenes of football, but they actually might because the United States, a lot of this team is young. Um, some of them look like they've been banged up. And it's a, it's a real tough one for the U.S. But I actually think that home crowd alone is what will be able to carry them through and take them to the final. If Daryl DK's on, 
I, I think there's a real chance. And so I th- I'm calling USA Canada final, but I'm calling Canada to get revenge and win it this time. So look, uh, we'll find out how dumb I am on this in about uh, in a week here. All right. So I wanted to get into the Olympics here. Uh, they've begun. It's uh, This is always fun. They're uh, five years since the last ones because of COVID, of course. Um, I'm going to focus a lot on the women's game. Um on the women's side in over the course of the Olympics. I will dip into the men's a little bit because it's an under-23 tournament. What I want to do more than talk about the way teams play and what they're doing is highlight individual players and moments because I think at the under-23 level, it's really, really hard to criticize coaches, especially considering a team like France, for instance, who had called in one set of pl- squad of players, told that nine of them had to go back to preseason with their clubs. So then they had to change it up again. They've got Andre Pierginiak and Florian Tovin, who are both at Tigres in Mexico playing with this team. They're the old heads in the room. Both, you know, one's a World Cup winner. So, hey, you know, I mean, it, it'll be it'll be interesting to see all these teams play each other. Germany, Brazil on the first day, Mexico, France. So I think there's, it'll be fun. It'll be fun. But we're just, I, I'm going to focus more just on individuals and moments because, I think on the women's side, the narratives are much, much deeper. They're bigger deal because this is these are the senior sides. Before I get into what happened, the big disappointment about these Olympics is that there are no fans, which sucks. I mean, it makes the games so stale, which I think may actually be one of the contributors to why the U.S. women struggled in this first game against Sweden, which we will get to after I go through a few of the rest. Now... Great Britain, Team GB, basically Team England, because there's uh, two Scots and one Welsh uh, woman on the team. Other than that, it's all English players. They started with a 2-0 win over Chile. Uh, And it was pretty much almost all England. Ellen White scoring both goals, not pulling out her goggles celebration. So we'll see if she comes up with something later in the tournament, because that was all kinds of fun at the World Cup. I was pretty impressed With them, I think it's incredible, actually. They have a lot of Man City players. There are 10 in the squad. Seven were in the starting lineup. Uh, That's that's great for Man City. That's really, really impressive. So, good for them. And, yeah, GB, honestly, they look really strong. They look like a team that, to me, they have to be one of the top contenders for this tournament. I think they'll win their group. And, And nobody wants to have to face them in the next round. They have a lot of options. Yeah, I, I think that's that's probably the team to beat at the, this very moment. But that's also because this morning the United States were crushed, which, like I said, we will get to. Uh, probably the most insane game of the day, for sure. Netherlands beats Zambia 10-3. to Two hat tricks. Four goals from Vivian Miedema, so she's the first one to get a hat trick. And then three from Barbara Banda from Zambia, the captain. One of their veterans, she uh, got the hat trick, scored all three goals herself. So, terrific little story there. I think that's awesome. But 10-3, to and you're wondering, well, how on earth? Like, what on earth kind of scoreline is this? Look, the tactics that Zambia had were all over the place. I couldn't believe what I was watching. The highest line I have ever seen. This makes Bayern Munich's line look deep. I mean, it was was unbelievable. The coach, his name is Bruce Mwape. Um, I'm not sure what he was hoping would happen. Uh, he's got a lot of belief in his players. That's abundantly clear. To press that high against a Dutch team with Vivian Miedema, who is one of the top goal scorers in world football, 
in in women's world football. I mean, you, uh, give me a break. I mean, that's um, that was really really interesting. And they were picked apart by a Dutch team that tactically are good enough to just be like, okay, short, short, long, to a runner that started their run from deep, and then we're through. And I think it was 4-0 in the first 17 minutes or something like that. But they scored three goals. They made a decent account of themselves. I I see Zambia being a far more competitive team in their next game if they don't do those tactics. I mean, I'm not saying they have to park the bus and sit deep. They can confront in the midfield. But what they were doing, look at the highlights. They are astonishing. It's it's mind-blowing. I I really recommend it. I mean, you'll get a good kick out of it. Then there were more goals. Brazil beats China 5-0. And watch the highlights. It's actually kind of mind-blowing China don't find a way to score in this game. I think they hit the woodwork three times. Um, Brazil were kind of clinical, which sounds harsh considering they won 5-0. But this could have been another 10-3. The amount of chances both teams were carving out. And it reminds you of sort of what the early days of you know, pandemic football was in the Premier League and across the top leagues in Europe where you were seeing crazy amounts of goals per game because it was just a strange new environment for a lot of people in massive stadiums with nobody. So, yeah, really, really interesting. Uh, Then host Japan fought back to get a 1-1 draw with Canada. Not much to say about this game. Uh, I watched the highlights. There wasn't really much that stood out um, except got to give a shout out to Christine Sinclair. She is Canada's top goal scorer, but also with 187 goals for her country in her career, is the top goal scorer anywhere, male or female, to have that kind of number. She's got the record. CR7 has 109, just for context. She She's quite a ways behind. She's quite a ways behind. So, um, yeah, 38 years old. She's she's great leader for this team, and I, Canada are a strong, strong team. Who they they are for sure capable of beating anybody in this tournament. I don't necessarily I don't put them above uh, Great Britain, and I don't quite think that they are as good as Holland. But we will see. Then there was the Battle of Oceania, Australia against New Zealand. I'm not sure why these two teams are in the same group. Strange IOC stuff, I guess. I don't really know. 2-1 winners were the Matildas, Sam Kerr on the score sheet, big surprise. And this is these are the other two teams in the U.S. and Sweden's group. Sweden showed us today just how good they actually are. And I, I got to say, I, I, I'm impressed with Australia uh, because I wasn't sure if they still retained some of that fire that they had at the World Cup a couple of years ago. But they're going to be tough opponents for the United States, I think. New Zealand... That's touch and go. If the U.S. comes out all guns blazing in their next match with all the reason to, to, to be much, much better, they could wipe the floor with New Zealand. It's very possible. It could also turn into a banana skin. Australia will be a little bit more challenging. And so let's move on to this, this game. This is the story of the day. The United States, who were on, I, well, I don't even know what, the, I don't remember the, na- the, the number of games they had gone without losing. It's kind of irrelevant to me. And it's irrelevant to me because of the opposition that they played for the most part. She Believes Cup, uh, you know, they also had a friendly with Sweden where they won 3-2. They had a couple games that were kind of close calls. But here's the thing. They were close calls where, and I saw a lot of these games. I watched a lot of them because I do really follow this team. I pay attention to what they do and especially because of the target that they currently have on their backs, the way they won the World Cup to a lot of people was not very convincing. 
Uh, a lot of people felt they were very lucky to get through against England, that the France game could have gone any which way, not in their favor, and that they weren't very good in the group stage aside from their massive win against uh, Vietnam. So, look, I or against Thailand, I'm sorry. And so watching them over the last year, I don't really think they've been ever scintillating. They've never been that U.S. team that we were seeing under Jill Ellis in the lead-up to the World Cup where they would just swat teams away, four or five goals the first half, take the gas off a little bit, um, beating everyone they came up against and scoring lots of goals. Hasn't looked like that under Vlatko. And so Sweden thrashed them, opened up a six-can of whoop-ass. I mean, this is it's just a six-pack. Just like completely demolished them. Sweden were fantastic, could have easily won by more. Yes, the United States had opportunities, could have scored themselves, there's no doubt. Chris Impress hits the post from about four yards out, open goal at the end. Yeah, she didn't have much time to react. These things happen. But it, it was a game that could have gotten a lot worse for the United States. Stina Blackstenius, amazing name, she had a double. And uh, Lena Hertig scored the killer goal, the 3-0. And I got to give head coach uh, Peter Gerritsen a lot of credit because he got his tactics spot on. Vladko, on the other hand, did not. What I think Sweden decided to do was be direct. And everyone in the lead up to this talked about, in the United States at least, talked about how Sweden is a tough team to break down. And everyone, of course, was talking about last Olympics. We went out against Sweden. You know, they defended. This isn't happening again. We're going to beat them this time. Well, Sweden didn't do what I think a lot of people thought that they would do. And though though Sweden played against the United States and lost just 3-2, having been, I think, 2-0 up in the game uh, last year, it's or, or earlier this year, it really started to show me that there were cracks in this U.S. team because you could get through them just kind of out of nowhere. You could just sort of get through, especially in transition. And Sweden really paid attention to this. And we're like, you know what? We cannot fear this team. When you give them control of the game, they tend to carve out enough opportunities to score because they have excellent players. But if you take control of the ball away from them and you start creating chances against them and then you press them higher up the pitch and start creating, forcing turnovers, their confidence now is tested. And if they haven't had to battle through much adversity, which obviously after, going, after having not lost in over two years, it's, it's definitely something that can can play games on a team's head, especially regardless to how good they really, really are. So Sweden were direct. They moved the ball and ran off it. That was a huge thing. They made big interchanges. Players were running from midfield beyond the back line of the United States. Um, they pressed all over the field and just forced turnovers. There were always two or three connected. The team was supported and balanced. I mean, it was exactly what you want from a defensive performance. And then when they got the ball, they did all the right things. It made it really hard for the U.S. to basically have any kind of control whatsoever. And they were just bad. They, they, they just were bad. I think that, you know, Megan Rapinoe came out with some quotes after the game that were completely spot on. She said, "It's you know, we feel like we just took an ass kicking for sure. Uh, we weren't good. If we had actually been able to pass the ball to each other for one, like just for one, if we had connected passes, that might have helped us a lot. Uh, Alex Morgan, she mentioned something. I'll get to her quote a little bit later here. But from the point that the U.S. needed to stop Sweden's momentum, which was right at 1-0, 
they didn't do it. That you you have to start breaking up play, maybe defend deeper, maybe press higher, change your shape. Something has to happen to stop a team from building more momentum because the first goal was already coming at 24 minutes. If Sweden just kept going and nothing changed from the U.S., the second goal would also be coming. I think that it's interesting Vlatko had a water break, seemed to use it, didn't see anything really change. Crystal Dunn had to make a couple like last-ditch tackles. Um, Alyssa Nair had to make a couple really good saves, especially from a excellent, excellent left-footed slice volley from Anderson. But, I mean, it could have been a lot worse by halftime. And so at halftime, he pulls off Sam Uis and Alex Morgan, puts on Julie Ertz and Carly Lloyd. Why not, right? These, the other two have not delivered so far in this game. Maybe adding a different personnel might give you something. But to me, watching this game, I was like, the tactics – are not good. Either the tactics aren't good or the players are executing them horribly, which I think is maybe hand-in-hand what's going on here. But then they go down 2-0 from a set piece. Corner kick comes in, and it's, you know, 101 defending. Like, two or three people go for the ball. They don't even win it. The keeper makes a save off the post. And then Stina Black and Stays is sitting just wide open. Four yards out from goal, smashes into the roof of the net. She, no one's even marking the, the, this player. Why? Right, so you're already seeing now that they their discipline on a set piece was run down because they were dealing with all kinds of other problems. They 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 had no control of the game. So at this point, the way you communicate prior to a set piece, a lot of it comes from confidence that you can deal with it. Uh, and and I, this was just an example, I thought, to where they were just super soft. And then look, the third was I think the most damning goal of all. It was one of those ones that you watched and you're like, that was way too easy. And you could have seen it coming from a mile away because Sweden simply connected the dots. They had the ball in their own defensive third on the near side as far as the cameras go. And they just passed the ball through just along the back, get it to the other side. Very simple. Pass the ball forward down the line, overlap, overload. Crystal Dunn can't deal with the 2v1 because it's a 2v1. Ball goes in behind to the runner, cross, header in the in the box. No one's even picking up the Lena Hertig. She's she's wide open and right in front of goal. And 3-0. And that was it. And it, honestly, it could have been worse. It was really an embarrassing way to lose for them. Look, this is a really good team. I, I don't know how much it means. I mean, they uh Like Alex Morgan said, she said, I felt like there were holes everywhere defensively. I didn't feel like we were pressing together. And then when we were on the attack and we'd lose the ball, we didn't have the numbers around it to win it back. I 100% agree. There were times where the banks, you know, the back four, the middle three, and the front three, they were so far apart from each other. There were oceans of space between them offensively and defensively. This is why Sweden had very little issues playing combination plays through the lines. That was very simple. Any combination worked. Overlaps, one-twos, three-player combinations. They were all working brilliantly because there was so much space. And then, like she said, when the ball would go forward, you're watching the screen and you're expecting a wave of white players to come into the penalty area And they're just not even there. And then they lose it, and the ball goes forward, and you find them standing 20 yards, 30 yards away from the penalty area. And it's too easy again to get through them because the center backs are behind the center circle 
in their own half. I mean, it was very disjointed. Seeing Vlatko sort of sitting on the bench in resignation was weird. I, 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 I it, it made me kind of feel bad for him, and I'll get into why in, in, in a sec. But look, in the end, what does it mean? First off, I, I think the U.S. has been put on notice. They got punched in the face, and uh, now it's going to be interesting to see how they respond. Fortunately for them, they have New Zealand next, which should not necessarily be a cakewalk, but it should be a game that if they come out strong, get a couple goals early, and get settled, they could really get themselves well-footed in this tournament. Uh, And remember that two (laughs) of the three third-place teams in this tournament advance. There's only three groups. There are 12 teams. I mean, it's kind of incredible. Only out of those, only four will get knocked out. It's 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 mind blowing. You got the three bottom teams and then one third place team. So to me, that's a little disappointing because it's kind of like, well, you know, you can screw up your first game like China, for instance, lose five nil, and if you win your next two, you're good. You're, I mean, and I know that six points should get you through in any group either. But if China can clean up their goal difference and get just three points total in the group. They, they may very well advance. That's kind of what the U.S. could easily do. Um, I just think that that makes this format a little bit ridiculous, especially with empty stadiums. I mean, it's like, come on, like, get on with it. Um, look, I talked a while back about how the U.S. have not impressed me under Vladko. And I've seen a lot of frailties. Obviously, transitions are probably the number one place. Um, I, I don't exactly know why it's, it's, it's not easy to analyze these kinds of things when you're watching games from the broadcast angle, because you can't see the lines, you can't see where players are positioned at certain moments, but I don't know, were they tired? They certainly looked so, uh, I, I, I obviously you have to give credit to Sweden for the way that they played and the way that they came out at the United States, but the U S was so stretched. It was, it was kind of unbelievable. Now, like I said, I think they'll qualify. I don't think that it's going to be a problem. But I do also, I, I want to say, I feel for Vlatko. And here's why. You take over a team that has won back-to-back World Cups from a coach who wins the World Cup, is not really loved the whole way through, goes to the Olympics, is knocked out, a player's mutiny to have her removed, the Federation sticks by her, she makes some changes to personnel, tactics, and formation and everything and creates a, a machine that goes and wins the World Cup. And by the way, the the togetherness of that team in 2019 was really impressive. I mean, they really had a good feel to them, and I'd say that's why they won and why they weren't beaten in games where maybe they weren't the better team. Now, and I also think Jill Ellis deserves a lot of credit for what she did tactically. She, she built a squad that was able to go and express itself, dig deep, and win games. Now you take over a team, you're Vlatko, you're a man, you take over a team of, you know, pretty powerful women at this current juncture in sport. And you've got veterans in there who are 36, 38, 39 years old. And you have been coaching in the NWSL and you know that there's a lot of really, really good talent there that would be great to bring into this national team. But where are they going to play when you have all these 30 plus year olds who have their spots cemented, they're world champions, they're icons in the team. The good thing is, to the credit of the players and him, I've heard nothing but positive interactions. I've heard of nothing but good things. But when I watch them play, he's he has not found an X factor yet. I, I, I'm sure his tactics, what he wants from them are good. But for them to just 
execute and then be able to play with a sense of freedom to really beat teams. I, this is where I wonder, you know, and it's it's nothing against him as a coach. I'm sure he he's got to this level because he's clearly capable of making of getting teams there. But is this group of players the one that Vladko really needs? This is why I would say, regardless of what happens in these Olympics, he needs to stick around and be able to rebuild the team a little bit. Um, I, I, I just, I think that it's also just a bummer that th this can't turn in, this can't sort of possibly turn into an absolute nightmare for the United States. I say that because the chances of them not qualifying are still outrageously low. And it, once they get into the latter stage of this tournament, again, they can beat anybody if they're, if they're on and if they're, and if everything's going well, which I wish there's more countries that were in this. I wish we could see Spain, Italy, South Korea, I don't know, Germany, France, any of those teams, Argentina, any of those teams would have been nice to see in this. But look, it's going to be interesting waking up in the middle of the night over the next two weeks to keep up with this. I'm very excited. And at, but before I actually close out, I know I've gone longer than I normally do here. Megan Rapino is obviously there's certain people who just love to hate her. Now, I don't care what you think of Megan Rapino. I don't care, you know, what what your real opinion is of the U.S. women's national team and how they feel. But I saw these headlines of guys being like, "Look, they took the knee before the game. Karma struck. They lost three zero. Um, both teams took the knee before the game." The U.S. players, some of them did it before the national anthem. That is not why they lost 3 nothing. People, like, let's stick to things that make sense and that are connectable. I think that that's just a narrative that's, I mean, it's just dumb. And to Megan Rapinoe's credit, she told the truth on what happened in the game. She said, we got an ass kicking. That's, that's all there is to it. And now we just got to be better. If you don't agree with her politics, fine. If you don't like her hair, I don't care. You know, no one does. Give credit where credit's due. All right. Also, Megan Rapino, she did come on and I think have maybe the best impact of any substitute. Uh, Tierney Davidson was actually pretty good as well. But it's going to be a tough competition for this United States team. They, they already know it. I think a lot of them, the age is catching up. I think that that desire to, to really go gung-ho at teams, that might be what's needed and that might be what's missing. So we'll, we'll see. But... It's a great time. Next couple weeks are going to be kind of interesting for me, right? Waking up in the middle of the night to try and watch some of these games. I won't watch all of them. But I'm also starting team training with my teams on Monday next week, which I'm so excited about. Football never burns out. This is Campfire Football. Thanks for stopping by.